Please join me in opening your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, we need you as we open your word to open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. We need your spirit to illuminate, enlighten our minds, that we might know and understand your word. And we need your spirit then to apply these truths to us, for we do not want to leave this place unchanged. We ask this through your Son and our Savior, who has the power to subdue all things to himself. Amen. It was said of Paul and Silas that these men have turned the world upside down, have come here also. The men brought the gospel of Jesus Christ, and where they brought the gospel, things were changed. Paul makes it clear that the gospel makes an impact in passages like Colossians 1, where it says this, "...because of the hope laid up for you in heaven..." Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel makes an impact. But we note through the book of Acts, and we're going to just look at a number of passages very quickly, and then we'll head over to Romans in just a moment. But in Acts, we see this perpetual responsiveness to the gospel. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, as Peter comes to the end of his message, the people say, what do we do? What do we do? And he gives them the the repent uh, for the forgiveness of sins. And then in verse 41, it says, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What an impact. The passage goes on and it talks about the apostles daily devoting themselves, the the church devoting themselves to the truth of the Word, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayers. Verse 47, it says they were gathered together day to day, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God kept saving people. Look at chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. And more than ever, verse 14 of chapter 5, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Look down at verse 42 of the same chapter. And every day in in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Chapter 6 and verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We see this impact of the gospel. We see droves of people 
coming to know Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the Gospel. We all want to see citywide, statewide, region-wide, nation-wide, worldwide transformation. We want to see this. We want to see this Gospel impact. The question that we have to ask is where does it start? Where does it start? How does this Gospel transformation in mass begin? And it'll tell you that it starts with the person that you look at in the mirror every day. That's where it starts. Then it's about the person in front of you or next to you, impacting them with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It starts with being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then we will have eyes to see and mouths to proclaim the transforming message of God's good news. Rather than focusing our energy on some giant movement, we should engage ourselves in the fruitful ministry that God has placed before us. The ministry of letting Him transform us and of being a vehicle by which He transforms those in our presence. For some, such as the Apostle Paul, there is a broader view that is needed. In addition to those nearby him, he had a passion for the regions that had not seen him face to face. He had a passion for the expansion of the church on a large scale. God had called him to this, and he was obedient to that call. He wanted to impact the church of Rome and those unbelievers surrounding the church of Rome. He had uh, probably a motivation to engage the church of Rome in support of a furthering expansion of the ministry into uh, Spain. You'll see that in Romans chapter 15 uh, in year 2025 when we get there. Uh, Right now we're in Romans chapter 1 and I want you to, to invite you to turn there. Romans chapter 1. You're in Acts. Just keep turning to the right. You'll come to Romans. Romans chapter 1. From this opening section of Paul's thanksgiving, we have noted these examples of passion that should make an impact upon us. From verse 8, we recognize that we need passion for the church's gospel influence. It says in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Their their faith had broadcast itself. We need to have that kind of a passion to see the faith of the Lord Jesus go forth from us and to reach the ends of the earth. Secondly, we need passion for ministry within Gospel churches. We saw that in verses 9 through 13. We won't reread that at this point. But he had a passion to bring the ministry of the gospel there, to, to impart to them a spiritual gift, to be both benefited by their faith and to benefit them with his faith. There would be a, a mutual encouragement toward one another. So we had a passion to minister within gospel churches, and so should we. And that leads us to a third main passion that we see. We need passion for the transformation of sinners. 
We read this passage already, but we're going to read it again. Verses 13 down through verse 17, where Paul writes this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the Gospel to you, to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. As we look at this passage, we want to notice some of this fruitfulness. The fruit of the ministry will be related to the seed planted. Look at verse 13. I, want you to, uh, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest. The word there, harvest, is fruit. That I may reap some fruit among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So now, now we have to make some implications from the rest of the text. It really matters what's planted, doesn't it? And there's not going to be any harvesting of spiritual fruit if the, the sowing is fleshly fruit. You'll remember this, I, I trust, from your reading of Genesis, that fruit bears after its own kind. After its own kind. You might remember this from Jesus dealing with Nicodemus. That which is born of the flesh is what? Flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It matters tremendously what is being planted to see what will be harvested. What is planted is related. Excuse me, what is harvested is what is related to what is planted. The Bible says this in Galatians chapter 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the re- flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap, what does it say? Eternal life. Eternal things. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap harvest if we do not give up. So Paul says, I want to come to you and I want to reap a spiritual harvest. And he tells them in the coming verses what what he was planning to plant there to receive that harvest. He says, I am under obligation, verse 14. I am eager, verse 15, to preach the gospel, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For by it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. He didn't leave us a mystery as to what he was going to plant and what he looked to harvest. He knew exactly what he planned to harvest. He was planning to harvest gospel fruit because he was going to plant gospel seed, much like the Lord Jesus illustrated in the parable of the sower. The sower goes forth to sow. He tells us that the seed is the Word of God. He doesn't know 
on which of the grounds it will fall, but he was going to keep on sowing. He would sow the seed. He would sow the gospel. He would sow, sow the seed of the word, and he would let the Lord deal with what the Lord needs to deal with. He had a plan, and his plan was related to planting good seed, the gospel. As we look a little further, the fruit of ministry will be related to the obedience to the call. The fruit of the ministry will be related to the obedience to the call. Look at verse 14. I am under obligation. The word there in other translations is rightly, I am a, a debtor. My, one of my friends, and you know him, I haven't talked to him for a while. He's a theologian. His name is Myron, Dr. Myron Houghton. He used to, he, used to, he, was, he was a punny guy. Uh, and he used to say, I owe, I owe, so it's off to work I go. <laughs> and that is the sense of verse 14. I owe. I am under obligation. I am a debtor, both to Jews and to Greeks, or excuse me, to Greeks and to barbarians, excuse me, both to the wise and to the foolish. He, he knew he was called, and he had to go. The fruit of ministry will be related to the obedience to the call. What, what, do, what do I mean? Well, I'll explain it with a verse. Romans chapter 10 and verse 14 says this. How then... Will they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You see, you see where I'm going with this? I'm under obligation. Why are you under obligation? Because they need to hear. Because they need to hear so they can believe. And they need to believe so that they can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Hearing, believing, calling. Dear Father, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm lost. I'm deserving of your eternal wrath. I need you. I need what you have offered through Jesus. Turn and call. But they won't, they won't call if they don't believe. And they won't believe if they don't hear. Paul sensed his obligation. He sensed his debt. This is a regular occurrence. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You're familiar with this. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Say the next word with me. Servants. Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned. Assigned. To each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. It's not about Paul and Apollos. But only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's. Fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. He had an assignment. 
The fruit of ministry is related to obedience to the call. He's called to preach the gospel. If he says no, is he having any expectation of a harvest of fruit? The answer class is no. But he's called. He's sent out with the gospel. And he obeys that heavenly call. He, he's a servant of God. He's a fellow worker with God. And so he plants or he waters and he waits for God to bring forth the increase because he's been assigned to the task. The fruit is related to the obedience to the call. Look a little further now. The fruit of ministry will come through the expected formula. The fruit of ministry will come through the expected formula. Verse 15, please. It says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. We do it eagerly. We preach the gospel eagerly. Why? We are debtors to the world about us. We're debtors to our family members. We're debtors toward one another. We're debtors toward our neighbors. We are debtors toward our uh, uh, fellow employees, our co-workers. We are debtors to the people that we come in contact with. We owe it to them to bring forth the Gospel. God has called us to this task. We do it eagerly. Hold your hand here. We're going to come right back. So don't leave Romans One hand in Romans and head over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. You'll find that on 983 if you're following one of our church Bibles. Colossians chapter 1. We're talking about an an eagerness of service. We're following the formula that God has given. We're going to plant with the gospel. Or we're going to plant the gospel. In Colossians 1, beginning in verse 24, listen to the words that Paul, in, I can sense the, the passion in Paul's heart as he writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body that is the church, of which... I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Him we preach or we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Can you sense the eagerness? Can you sense it? I, I want to come to Rome. I want to gain. I want to receive or reap a spiritual harvest. I, I am a debtor to Greeks and barbarians, wise and unwise. And so I'm eager. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome, like I preached it in in Antioch and other places. I preach the gospel where I go. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also. Now we sort of call these people believers, hasn't he? A lot of commentators want to talk about this as simply evangelism. And I understand they use the, the root word 
for, for this, and he really wants they want to talk about this going out into the community, but he's talking to a church. He's talking to a church. I want to preach the gospel to you. He's already called them saints, those that are called by God. He's told them that they belong to Jesus Christ. He wants to preach the gospel there to these believers, and he does it eagerly. And so we want to follow that formula of being eager. Back in Romans chapter 1, we also want to recognize that we do this unashamedly. We do it unashamedly. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why? Well, I've experienced what the gospel does. Why would I be ashamed of that which God has used to save me? I've, I've recognized that my sin is deserving of eternal damnation. I've realized that I needed to turn from my sin and turn to Jesus Christ. And, and I have, in fact, called upon the name of the Lord. And you know what took place that moment? I was redeemed. You know what else took place? I became a son of God. What else took place? He placed his spirit within me. God's spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am one of his children. In fact, the spirit cries out through me, Abba, Father, I know what it's like to have experienced the benefits of the gospel. Why would I be ashamed of it? There is no other way to God. There's no other name given among men where we must be saved. We have it all. There's only one way, truth and life. No man comes to the Father except through him. To be ashamed of the gospel. Oh, well, I wonder what Jesus would say about this. Uh, he's, he's told us a little bit about it in Mark chapter 8 and other places. Listen to what it says. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever will, loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." You're not ashamed of the gospel. You might have a difficulty sometimes saying it, speaking it forth. But I think as we look at the Word, and as we yield ourselves to the Spirit, God will enable us, with with His grace, and our personalities, and our giftedness, to be able to share the gospel one-on-one, with a friend, with a coworker, with a child, with a parent, with a husband, a wife. The Lord can enable you. I'm not ashamed. Why would I be ashamed of that which is my all? Because the gospel, as you understand, is not just some words. The gospel 
is a declaration of the character of God. The gospel is a declaration of who God is. And we certainly will not stand ashamed of the God who created all things with the breath of his mouth. And every second sustains every atom in the universe. The God who is is the substance of the gospel. And so we will not be ashamed. We do it eagerly. We do it unashamedly. We do it accurately. We do it accurately. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. There's a message there. So in addition to the the gospel being a representation of God's character, it is actually articulated. It is the good news. We do it accurately. We'll talk more about that in a couple of moments. We also do it humbly. It, the gospel, not me, the messenger. It, the gospel, is the power of God. God's power is the source. We do it humbly. And we do it expectantly. It is God's power unto salvation for everyone who believes. When you think of the method of ministry that God has laid out, you think door-to-door evangelism, bus ministries, vacation Bible schools, food pantry ministries, neighborhood Bible studies, and carnivals. You see all of that in the New Testament, right? Right? You don't see an instruction manual on, on evangelism, how to do it? Evangelism 101, this is how God says to do it. You don't see that? Oh. Actually, the Bible doesn't prescribe the medium or the avenue. Our Bible teaches us of God, man, sin, and salvation. The gospel comes in word and deed, in the proclamation and in the demonstration. Our ministries may employ very creative strategies. There's nothing wrong with strategy and planning evangelistic endeavors, but the strategy is not the end. The strategy is an avenue toward the end. The end is the glory of God through the salvation of souls. So what I want for us to do in the next few moments is to recognize the formula that God has demonstrated for us. We need to get these three things right. These three things we must get right. First of all, God's message. Secondly, God's power. Thirdly, God's righteousness. If all things go well, we will cover all three of those. If not, we will cover one of those. We'll see how it goes. God's message. We have to get God's message right. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God's message is the gospel. Paul says he's not ashamed of this 
gospel. We can never get to the good news lest we first begin and understand the bad news. The good news without the bad news is not really the news. It's just something. It's good. It's good to talk about Jesus. But the full spectrum of the picture, the panoramic view, or the MRI of the matter is necessary for the good news to have its proper impact. There will be no need of repentance and faith if there is no understanding of the consequences of our sin. The bad news, which Paul will convey in this letter very clearly, is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The bad news is that the wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is death. The very positive message, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Positive, right? It implies something very negative. What is the negative? Those that are not in Christ Jesus are what? Condemned. This is the bad news. Whoever believes in Him, the Bible says in John 18, is not condemned. That's positive. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That is negative. People must understand that they are sinners in need of rescue from the righteous wrath of God. It's a tough one to figure, and it's not a popular subject. But we have to understand this. God is the rescuer. Yes, that's positive. Thumbs up. Who is he rescuing us from? Himself. Satan can't condemn you to hell. You can't condemn you to hell. I can't condemn you to hell. This church can't condemn you to hell. The universal church can't condemn you to hell. There's only one who can do that. And it is God and, very specifically, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Who is he who judges? Huh, it is Christ Jesus who died. That's what he says, right? God rescues people from his righteous wrath. To avoid this topic in the presentation of the gospel, listen carefully, is to be ashamed of the gospel. I don't say this lightly. I really don't. But there is a lot of churchianity out there that doesn't talk about sin and judgment and condemnation. And if they don't talk about sin and judgment and condemnation, I'm not talking like this is our number one priority. I want to make sure you know you're condemned. And, and it's like this, this fiery, hellish experience every time you come to church. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. I want you always to leave here knowing the glorious blessing of the gospel 
but the glorious blessing of the gospel will mean not much to you unless you first understand the righteous wrath of God that I deserve. I deserve, and my friend, you deserve. Our sin is repugnant to a holy God. God hates sin. His wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness. He's going to tell us that in verse 18. Revealed against all unrighteousness. That includes mine. And that includes yours. So we understand the rightful, righteous wrath of God against my sin. And this sets me up to understand the remedy, the solution, the good news. What is the good news? Well, I'm glad that you want to know. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save what? Whom? Sinners of whom I am foremost. I am the chiefest of sinners. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. We're familiar with John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. It is because we are helpless and condemned that God sent his son, to do what we were unable to do. And so Peter describes Jesus as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was in every respect tempted as we are yet without sin. And Paul in Romans 4.25 writes that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, Paul writes this, for our sake he God the Father made him God the Son who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in short, We are sinners deserving of God's just condemnation. God is, I wrote a rescuer, I would say the rescuer, and don't judge me for the grammar on this next sentence. He sent his son, you're doing it, stop it. He sent his son to bear the full judgment for our sin and to provide perfect eternal righteousness in order for us to have an eternal right relationship with God and to live with Him forever. I'm going to say here. 
You do know what Selah means, right? Stop and ponder. How do we enjoy this rescue? Admit you're a sinner. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus for salvation. In doing so, you'll be able, with the Apostle Paul, to say, I will be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the message. We can't get it wrong. We can't get it wrong. God's message. This is the formula. The formula to reap a bountiful harvest, a fruitful harvest, is to preach the gospel message. I think that's enough for this morning. But it's not enough. It's not enough for us to sit here or to stand here to talk about it or to listen to it. It's not enough. There are enough hearers and not doers on this earth. There's enough professing Christianity on this earth. We've spent enough of our past lives in wasting it away. We recognize the truthfulness of what we've spoken about this morning. I look out and I recognize almost everyone in here. I recognize uh, most of your testimonies. I understand most of uh, what you proclaim as true about yourself. And so I, I think it's wise for us to sit here for a moment and consider, yes, I believe this truth. And I believe the call that comes with this truth. And so we must... Take it to heart today, ladies and gentlemen. There is a call upon us as those who know the benefits of the Gospel. We know that it transforms us, and we're going to talk next week about how it continues that transforming work in us after our salvation. We know the benefits, and we recognize people around us that need the good news. It's so easy to recognize and to do nothing. Let it not be said of us this week that we've come in contact with someone we knew needed the gospel and we kept our mouth shut. Let us be eager, eager to preach the gospel. Let us sense the indebtedness that is ours to the, the Greeks and the barbarians to the wise and the unwise. And let us not be ashamed of the gospel of God. God's gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. Let us trust the Lord by obeying Him this week. Let's pray. Father, we need Your help. We, We struggle... We struggle to not want to interfere in other people's lives. We, we struggle to be rejected. We 
are fearful at times of what they might say, what they might ask, if we might forget something, we might stumble over our words. These, these are fleshly responses that trouble us. We know that that which is born of the flesh is flesh and it keeps us from doing what we're called to do. On the other hand, Father, we also know that Your Spirit is able to give us boldness, clarity, confidence, accuracy, and fruitfulness. Help us to be willing to share the Gospel this week. Help us to be prayerful about how we might make an impact on someone Bring to our minds, even in these next moments, someone that we want to talk to and help us to pray, pray daily for this opportunity and this one, that they would be receptive to understand the good news of Jesus Christ and how you can save a sinner like you saved us. Do your work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.